Hello, my fine friends. Thank you for choosing my podcast to listen to. We're powered by ACAS Plus. You can join uh, ACAS Plus if you want to get lots of bonuses. Google Rahalastapa and ACAS Plus and you'll get right there. There's lots of fun stuff to get. Um, Rahalastapa tour is nearly over. 21st of March, I'm at Bedford Corn Exchange. I'm talking to Olaf Falafel, who's a very funny children's author and stand-up comedian, and Al Murray, the pub landlord and historian man. And a friend of mine, uh, it should be fantastic, who went to Bedford, went to school in Bedford. It should be amazing. There's plenty of tickets left for that one. Uh, Glasgow on the 27th and Hull on the 28th. They're both sold out, but do keep checking the sites for returns. And uh, occasionally we put some comps back on sale, so there may be a chance to buy tickets. The main thing, though, is that I am going to be on tour doing stand-up, and I would love you to come. Uh, it's uh, from... It starts officially in May, but so uh, there's a few tryouts in April and March. So I'm at the Bill Murray. I'm at um, various places, Luton Hat Factory and uh, the Berry Hedge End. I don't even know where that is before going into a big tour where I'm going all over the place. It's selling in various degrees. Glasgow sold out. They've added an extra date. Uh, Chorley sold out, joined the waiting list. Uh, but a lot of the others have plenty of tickets. So... Do go and come to see that. RichardHerring.com slash ballback slash tour for all those tour dates. RichardHerring.com slash Rahalastapa for the remaining Rahalastapa dates. And uh, yeah, and then I'm going to take a little break from doing Rahalastapas. It'll be nice. We've got loads in the bank. Uh, so I hope you're enjoying them. I think there's some very high quality ones from this tour. Uh, so do keep listening. Do keep telling your friends. RichardHerring.com for all your Richard Herring needs. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy another Rahalastapa. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Uh, hello, welcome to the final book club of this series. We will be back in September with the second series, so don't worry. We've already recorded a couple of those. Um, and uh, I am joined by Malcolm Gaskill, who's written a fantastic book called The Ruin of All Witches, Life and Death in the New World. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, Richard. Um, lovely to meet you. I was given your book for Christmas uh, by uh, my brother-in-law's boyfriend, oh, who's nice. also an author. I don't know his last name, so I can't help you if you <laughs> might know him. Uh, and, um, uh, I, it took me till now to read it, though, but uh, I very much enjoyed it. Great. Be before we uh, start talking about the book, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit, a bit about who you are? Okay, so I am uh, an ex-professor of history at the University of Isanga. That's to say, I'm now emeritus 
which is a sort of state of semi-retirement, although my wife disagrees with this. But I no longer teach, but I still keep the title. So uh, I'm a historian. Uh, I've mostly worked on uh, the history of witchcraft for more than half my life. God, yes, that's right. Um, but uh, so, but you know, that, that's really what I do. So it's really trying to understand what witchcraft meant in the past, undo some myths and just try to get under the skin of the people who really did believe in it. Yeah, it's uh, it's not a, a an area of history that I, I did study history, but I didn't really study this period very much. And it is a sort of fascinating doorway between the past and the the present, I suppose, or or the the the, the journey into the present day. In that it's sort of witches signified sort of old fashioned superstition, but but then things change. But you know, as the as this book shows it's not like we're completely free <laughs> of the, no, of no, the paranoia that that uh, fueled fueled this um so it is a is a very very interesting subject and i'm not surprised you spent so much of your, of your time on it i know you've written well, a few other uh, you've written a few other books about this subject but this one see i mean this one is um a done incredibly well in terms of breaking through hasn't you were nominated for the um wolfson history prize Mm-hmm. Along with their previous guest on this podcast, Francesca Stavrakopoulou. Both of you failed to win it, I should say. I don't <laughs> yeah, know. thanks for reminding us. Yeah. I don't know how good the book was that won yeah. it, but both the, 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 your two books are two of my favourite books of the year. Oh. So, um, so I haven't I haven't read the I won't I won't read the winner. No, I don't. don't. No, be, I don't. don't be disloyal in the context of this program. <laughs> it would. Um, but. Um, yeah, what what drew you to the? I mean, this is a obviously you've written broadly about witchcraft and witches yeah. before, but this is all about one very specific case from sort of the 1650s in a place called Springfield. Is it in Massachusetts? Massachusetts, yeah. yeah um, so, uh, uh, and um, what drew you to to this particular story to write about in detail? Well, the sources allow you to get really kind of uh, to, to produce a very sort of fine fine-grained account of what was going on so you really can tease out all the characters and their relationships and everything they did and I think that you know a lot of witchcraft cases can be described as a sort of with a kind of overview but if you can really get down to the nitty-gritty it all sort of makes more sense and we can distance ourselves a bit from that sort of you know that condescension of the present to the past where we just look back and think they were all raving mad and you know and the you know, they couldn't wait for the, um, you know, the Enlightenment so they could all be more serious and sensible like us. So in their world, it's, uh, you know, witchcraft is really frightening, but they're also incredibly uncertain about whether or not the people they suspect are witches really are and whether they can prove it. So this is, you know, you were saying just then about this being a kind of sort of transitional period between, you know, superstition and science. And I think that's really what's fascinating about the early modern period. It is, is this bridge between things that we think are very, you know, familiar and comfortable today and a much darker, more distant past where we think that uh, everything was bad and wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting that... Um... Uh, you know, you sort of assume with witches that sort of unusual women usually were just dragged off and <laughs> thrown on yeah. a fire or thrown in a pond or something. Cool. And what is interesting about this uh, particular case is, it, it, you know, there is a lot of, there's a, it goes to court and there's a, a lot of argument <laughs> about, and there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of analysis of it. And it's, and it's obviously quite a difficult 
thing to prove of someone unless they come out and say, I, I am a witch. Burnley. That's right. Well, we were in a period when everybody still, well, pretty much everybody, still agrees in the idea of witchcraft. You know, nobody really wants to say witches don't exist because actually the idea of witchcraft is in the Bible and it's it's a bit like saying, well, the devil doesn't exist and then God doesn't exist. So the idea is there. But when it actually comes down to your neighbours, then it's a much more difficult thing. So we can have a situation where people agree with the concept, but they're very, very unsure about the practicalities of proving it. And that's really what this story is about. And that really shows this, not exactly a hinge moment, but a transitional period in our cultural history between, well, yeah, the the superstition and science, I suppose, to give it that kind of shorthand. And do you want to sort of briefly sum up what what this particular incident was and what it re- what it revolved and who it who it revolved around and what happened. Yeah, so this is a it's a very strange kind of community. This is obviously in colonial America. Um, they arrive in the Connecticut Valley and there's not much there, and they build this. Well, they try to rebuild this English world for themselves, but the people are actually pretty horrible. Um, there are one thing about this book, as you probably noticed, is there's not really any sympathetic characters in it. <laughs> if it was a novel, you'd probably think about putting some in, but it's not, and you can't. And the the reason they're horrible is that they, you know, whatever ideals they go to America with, they're really competitive and they really hate each other and they're incredibly envious of one another and, you know, green-eyed about any particular kind of land that comes up or property. So, that they're, you know, they're always at loggerheads with each other. And I think that some of those negative emotions get projected onto uh, a couple called Hugh and Mary Parsons Hugh is the local brickmaker, and his wife Mary is a uh, well, was a former maidservant. And she marries Hugh, and she looks after the home. And she's actually rather sensitive, I think, rather mentally unstable. Um, and so it isn't exactly that they then become scapegoats for everything that goes wrong, because there are a series of misfortunes that they're blamed for. But it's more that they fall foul of their neighbours, and I think we can identify with some of this. You know, it's about not not quite fitting in because you don't quite um, play by the rules, no, unspoken rules about the way that you should behave as a neighbour and a householder and the rest of it. But one of the things about this story, because it is a micro history and you can tell it a bit like a novel, you can, you know, you can give this really detailed, accurate picture of what their lives are like, is you can see how the accusation, the suspicions unfold over time. So it's really the opposite, again, as that sort of myth that you just described, where it's just like, oh, my God, we can't explain things. So we'll just accuse somebody and drag them off. And, you know, they really don't do that. Um, And so it's a much more slow burning, smoldering process as they find they kind of ease their way towards actually accusing somebody and then it going to law and the rest of it. And it's sort, of, but it's sort of. I mean, it's almost comical if it wasn't sort of uh, had fairly tragic consequences, at least for a couple of the participants. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in that, some of the things uh, seem pretty full on, like to, uh, being bitten by snakes that then say death to you, or mm-hmm. raining caterpillars. But then one of the instances is someone losing their trowel and then finding it where <laughs> where they lost last had it. Well, so basically, a bloke yeah. thought thought he'd lost his trowel and then realised it was where he'd put it. Is, is now, now Richard, have you, ever, have you ever lost a trowel? Because if you haven't, it can be pretty distressing. But no, the thing is that, yeah, these, you, know, when these, uh, you know, when it actually gets into, well, the courtroom in Springfield, when they start gathering the evidence, and the, these 
people start coming forward with all their misfortunes. And it really doesn't add up to very much. And I think actually some people there, there's certainly there's somebody who comes from outside. And I think he's laughing at them, even at the time. It's not that there's absolute consensus about everything, about anything. So that the, the, one of the things is that this woman started to make these puddings and these puddings fail. It's basically, it's a failed recipe. Um, it doesn't seem like a disaster, but the thing is that these are symbolic. These are symbolic of Hugh Parsons, the suspected witch, sort of messing with the household activities of these. Well, they're, after all, they're quite poor people. So that things like losing a trowel or a pudding, you know, a meal failing where we would just shrug it off. For them, it's both, you know, it's materially quite bad, but it's symbolic of Hugh Parsons being envious and just kind of playing with them and interrupting their... Uh, you know their, the, you know their domestic lives, but you know as you see in the book, it doesn't actually in the end become the kind of hard evidence that Hugh and Mary Parsons have actually compacted with Satan. Um, it's so that it's it does seem daft, but it seems a bit daft even to see people at the time. It isn't just the distance of you know posterity to us that makes us look back and think this was all a bit crackers. No, and also you're reading it and thinking, this, oh, these people, how could they believe this crazy stuff and argue yeah. over such petty yeah, stuff? Yeah. And then you go, oh, yeah, yeah I can't really, we can't really talk. <laughs> so yeah. It does make you think about uh, about stuff that's going on now and the and the paranoia and the way that's fueled. I mean, I think because it's, it's about people who have a very strong religious faith and have then... Uh, because it's happening, they're Puritans basically going to, from England or the UK to... Uh, America and they obviously it's a completely different world they believe God's on their side yeah and so when things go wrong they have to blame someone else but they're also in a in a country where they have no concept of anything so I just love the clash of all the ideas but also the clash of meeting the Native American people and obviously having to kind of justify and understand how that can be and how people can have such different views of them it's you know you can understand uh, why they, you know, why they wouldn't understand why different insects were arriving because they wouldn't have those insects in no, the UK. They, they, exactly, and they feel that God is testing them. You know that they, yeah. they, 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 it isn't just like being in England and having a terrible time, which they were before. It's actually something special about being in New England, and I think you don't even have to be a kind of raging Puritan at that time to feel that there is some special covenant, there's some challenge that God has presented to you. And that if thing, if you really don't um, sort of measure up and don't satisfy God, then New England could cease to exist. So that their their miniature crises are actually connected to a much greater imagined existential crisis where New England could fail. And because of the Native American threat to them, um, that really that they and of course in the 1670s a bit outside this story but later on Springford is almost completely destroyed during the native wars which really do threaten the existence of New England so it does you know it's not an entirely unfounded fear that New England will be obliterated it it almost comes to pass. Yeah, and it's you know, and it's they're also obviously people are dying and children are dying at at an incredible rate basically it seems like almost every child in the in the book is either ill or or dies and that you know in terms of uh, Mary Parsons I think that would uh, explain partly why you know that people have to grieve in fact Hugh one of the suspicions against Hugh is that he doesn't grieve properly for the death of his son and sort of takes it on the chin and says, says he goes and grieves privately 
But um, but that that seems out of place. But yeah, when you're losing, because obviously people, even though children died a lot more regularly in those times, that people would still have felt exactly the same as we do about our children, and it would they be do. an absolute body blow to to experience this. Yeah, I think that's again that's one of the myths that's been confounded that in the past that you know the infant mortality was so high. And that women had children so often they didn't really care. It was a bit like, oh, well, the children have died. Oh, it's all right. We'll have another one. And I'm not, I'm not going to be emotionally affected by this because it's before 1800. But that, uh, you know, people are really, really distressed by it. And that you mentioned Hugh Parsons. He's, he doesn't quite give the right emotional signals when his son dies. And that makes him suspicious. But it's just very interesting that, that people would have expected a man to grieve. Yeah. Um, you know, when his child died and the fact that he didn't, because he's... The thing is about Hugh Parsons is he's, he's one of the most horrible people in the book, amongst, <laughs> in, a, in a wide open field of being yeah. horrible. But he is <laughs> sort of trying to do the right thing a lot of the time. You know, he's not totally... You know, he's not totally dreadful. He's sort of trying to live up to the standards of people around him. And so that I think that when he goes away, he says, I was really upset by my son's death but I didn't want people to see me crying. It's probably not an unreasonable thing to have thought and felt. He's trying to be, um, you know, he's trying to measure up to being a man, to being a public man. Yeah. So the masculinity in this world is about being the right kind of male household and not just being a bloke, you know? Yeah. And, um, and that's what he gets totally wrong time and time again. But a lot of it is just because he is just irritable and awkward and, you know, just seems really ratty with just about everybody all the time. And he's uh, such got he's got such an important job within the community because he's the brick maker and they don't yeah. have enough bricks. Yeah. And so for them for them to get pissed off with him to this extent, yeah. it must uh, have been terrible. Because you'd sort of go, I'll put up with him being a witch as long as I get a chimney out of it, you know. But if, well, if he's <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think there is something in that because he does have power because bricks you know, these are one of the things that, the, that not just we would take for granted, but people in old England take for granted. If you want bricks, you can go and get them. There, it's much harder. It's a specialist skill. And that they need bricks to build chimneys. And that means, one, that your house doesn't burn down because chimneys made of wood are rubbish. And the second thing is that chimneys are status symbols. And they're always trying to get to, you know, it's conspicuous consumption. So that Hugh Parsons does have a certain amount of power. So I think they do put up with him for a long time. You know, it is a bit like, well, on the downside, he's a witch. On the upside, he makes breaks, as you say. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I think it does take so long to get rid of him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I should say it's not really a spoiler, but they, when, when he is gone, they do, there is another brick maker and they fall out with him too. So I think it's something. <laughs> Something about being a, an irritable brickmaker in that yeah. world, I don't know. Brick, it's probably brick lost the time. Brickmakers, yeah. It's hot it's like, work. It's like yeah. scaffolders today. They're all yeah, kind of cra they're crazy Ru and Rupers, unpredictable. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's I mean? There's like it's a it's an amazing story, and it's and it's beautifully written, and and it, you as you say, Thanks. it sort of is. It reads like a, a novel up to extent. When I first got it, and for Christmas, I read the first page. I asked my uh, my my brother's brother-in-law's boyfriend if it was a novel or a or a or, or if it was true, because I was I just I just read the first page on the on the day because it's written like a novel, but it's obviously deeply researched. You've got I think you've got seven hundred and fifty nine footnotes. God, that so, many? I think so. I think that's what I wrote down. Uh, and so you know, it is deep deep research. And you uh, is there any degree to which you were uh, yeah you were th there's a few emotional things that it feels you yeah. must have guessed, but maybe that maybe there there was some record of them and the. 
things like the weather. You, you're very specific about weather and and is all of that stuff that you've been able to get from the records or did you yeah i didn't yeah i know the thing is that you have to use a degree of imagination yeah. and hillary mentel's written about this and the great cultural historian natalie zen davis has written about this and they both call it informed imagination so that you're not exactly inventing stuff but you are drawing on sources that might not be directly from that story, uh, but to bring to bear on it. So, for example, weather. Now, it might not, say, might not have said it was, you know, there were storms in Springfield at that, on a certain day, but if, it was down, if there were storms down the Connecticut Valley, then you could be pretty sure there was. So you kind of triangulate with other sources. Yeah. And, you know, and I, you have detailed descriptions of how a household is run in a place nearby, but maybe not in Springfield. So then you can kind of, you know, migrate one over to the other. But the thing about the evidence, and this is true of a lot of witchcraft accusations for which there are good records, is that people do talk a lot about their emotions. They talk about fear and anxiety and envy and greed because it's these toxic emotions which are actually um, the substance of successful witchcraft accusations because if you can impute those motives to the suspect, then you give them a motive. And so that really, I don't, um, you know, to, to an ex, it's a question I've been asked before, but, you know, I'm not really inferring how people are feeling. I, you know, wherever possible, I'm drawing exactly on what they say they felt or what other people say that, you know, they think other people are feeling too. So it is really a book that's, that's steeped in the history of emotions, which has become its whole, uh, whole distinct subfield now in history. Yeah, and uh, and drawing on those kinds of models and and skills and ideas, but it's just something about this evidence which is itself rich in emotion. So, and also how people are thinking and dreaming. You know, they describe all this stuff. Yeah. So when I say you know, so the people's inner lives, this is where they pour it all out in the in a court of law, which I never dreamed of doing for other crimes or in almost any other situation. That's why witchcraft is such a good window on this world. And it's incredible that all this stuff. It has survived for for so so you've you've pretty much got all the all of the records from the the case still existing, which seems yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, well, the, the the records come from different places, but some of them actually are still in Springfield. They've travelled like about half a mile up the road in yeah. four centuries, which is amazing. But the the main record, which is all the the depositions which are used in the court case, all those test witness testimonies, and there's loads of them are just all in one little volume that William Pinch and Havage is now in the New York Public Library. And without that, it would have it would have been impossible. That that little book of depositions really is the backbone of the book. And it's that which enables you to to reconstruct this world. And it's the world of emotions and feelings and ambiguities of relationships and all the things that are often invisible in witchcraft cases. All of that stuff can be reconstructed to make sense of um you know, quite why Hugh and Mary Parsons do find themselves in the frame for witchcraft. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Uh, and in the epilogue, you talk about, uh, or towards the end of the book anyway, or maybe it's in the, in the acknowledgements, you talk about not belittling the characters by suggesting that we know better. Mm. Um, and so what's quite, because you're not, at no point in the book do you suggest that they might be, you, 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 you talk about witchcraft as, as if it might be true or as if, as if certain mm. people believe it's true. And so you've not, uh, well, maybe you think witchcraft is true, so I'm not imposing my views on you, but you haven't, you don't seem to have imposed your own, uh, 21st century logical brain on, on top of that. Yeah, I think, I mean, for the record, I don't believe in witchcraft. Just, <laughs> okay. <laughs> see, there's a, I can see you, you, you can relax now on um, <laughs> insulting my religious beliefs. But no, it's, um, it, but I think historians of witchcraft really have to take their contemporary categories seriously in order to understand the internal logic of their world. It's the, it's the easiest thing in the world just to be, to sort of export present-centred explanations and keep saying, oh, well, what they were really suffering was this or what they really, you know, that that tells us a lot about ourselves but doesn't really enable us to see, you know, to see our ancestors with all their kind of uncertainties and ambiguities and ambivalences, all those things. They are just like us in there. They're different. They're about different things, but they are just like us in the sense that they are unsure of themselves. So, it's about giving them that third dimension back and not just turning them into kind of 2D puppets that we ventriloquize from the present. And yeah. that's just why these sources are really good. And you see them, they kind of, they don't exactly lift off the page, but, you know, but with that kind of deep, detailed research that I did for the book, you do start to paint a picture in, you know, a pointillist picture um, where you can start to, sympathize with them to a degree and really understand why they saw the world that way and you know and why you and I would have done had we lived in that world too yeah and as you say it's not as if the the you know um that the age of enlightenment has delivered us into the sunlit <laughs> uplands uplands of reason um, no. because we still live in a in a in a crazy and perhaps increasingly crazy world and, it, and I don't know, it must be about trying to make sense of a new world. And like you say, there are these long winters, and so people are uh, basically imprisoned in the houses for most of the time. Yeah. But do you feel any of it? I mean, I've, I've seen sort of research about religions that, and, and spiritual experiences that um, there may have been sort of drugs involved, even accidentally. Some, some of them feel very drug. The, the snakes and the little mm. witch sitting on the shelf, is it? I think there's a little. Yeah. There's a little um, they, those feel like very sort of you know obviously hallucinations that might be drug induced if they would accidentally got something in their food or something like doing that's a possibility it's it's quite possible i mean it's one yeah. of the explanations for the salem witchcraft trials that that um that the um uh, they get ergotism so it's basically 
like having an acid trip because you yeah. eat rye, or maybe they collected mushrooms, or you know, and they're having, they're, everyone's tripping all over the place. Who knows? But then I think that they, they, that becomes the danger there again is we're explaining it away. And actually, I think that you can all these things, all these hallucinate, hallucinations, and everything that they infer from their surroundings makes sense if you think well. Their worldview is um, one which is connected to a magical, divine, diabolic universe. And also that they're incredibly afraid. You know, there's this great fear and anxiety about themselves and their children and their futures. And so they have a, you know, they have a nightmare that's so incredibly vivid that when they wake up, they feel that they've had some kind of diabolic experience. Now, that doesn't happen to everybody, but it does happen to people who are extremely fearful about their future and themselves and witches and the rest of it. So fear is, I think, is almost enough. And you don't necessarily have to have had some funny mushrooms um, no. in order to, to have these <laughs> bizarre pipe dreams, you know? Yeah, I do like the idea that witches would just be sort of dicks rather than sort of evil. <laughs> just if, if you Parsons is a witch and did all this stuff of of just making people's trowels disappear and making uh, pudding <laughs> split into three, it's sort of just using your powers as as a, <laughs> to be yeah. an irritant is is kind of you know it's sort of <laughs> it's sort of I would if I was a witch I think I would do that Rob more than more than the super scary stuff. So it is it is interesting. Um, and you it, it feels like you have researched this book for a good long time and worked on this book for a long time because you talk about um you visited springfield and the area a couple mm. of times in mm. your research and That's you write right. about this that this is in the epilogue where you write about going to the libraries and finding the town constitution and, and things like this mm. um how, how long did it actually take you to write the book or is that kind of impossible to to say well yeah it's kind of it was sort of an on, on and off thing yeah. i was teaching for some of that time and but I, I think that it originally is probably going on for about six or seven years. But, you know, the idea that I was shut in my ivory tower, <laughs> you know, just just working well that would, is, is too tragic to contemplate and actually not true. But uh, but, you know, you do. But in all that time, it does live with you. You know, you have to kind of you do get really, you know, it is like a sort of, you know, it's a family Christmas from hell where you're sort of shut up with all these characters. And you do, you do, you have to kind of, you know, I think live with them and feel them. And I think going to Springfield, all that kind of slightly spooky stuff that I talk about in the, the epilogue, you know, I take that stuff seriously, even though I don't believe in ghosts. So I think you do have to commune with your characters and tolerate them uh, in order to try and understand them and and, and write about them. So, um, you know, I was happy to leave them, but um, I'm t- <laughs> because it's a it's a slightly toxic world. But I think that you know that they do come out of it in, as I say, with 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 in three D, and they're to that extent much more like us, um, rather than those sort of benighted people from the past that we like to distance ourselves from because it makes us feel sophisticated. And, yeah, and, and I know, think there's. I can say, I think there's so much going on, and that's why. I mean, the book it stays with you because you sort of think about one element. You know, you can think about the supernatural, and you think about the religious element, you think about the social element, uh, and they're just the his, the history is just such a fascinating. Period. I think just that the idea of the new world meeting the of the old world, just of of you know the Native Americans and and everything that was to come from that is just so fascinating as well. Uh, and I think I mean I suppose even though it's sort of slightly surprising that almost the main which is uh, is a, in this story is a man, whereas again we sort of we associate witches with being women, but but obviously there there is also uh, women involved in this. 
do you feel um you know this is an ongoing story isn't it of uh it being about the control of women and women who have any any of any spark or any thing unusual about them uh being sort of it, it feels more like about control rather than about yeah. Uh, about a genuine belief, I think, for some of these people at least. Well, it's it's about conformity, I guess, and about the anxiety, uh, social anxiety, which is connected to people stepping out of line. So it's the idea of witchcraft is perfectly, makes perfect sense for a man um, in 17th century England or New England, but it's just more likely to be a woman. The, 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 the reason for that in their world is that women were the weaker vessel. That meant that if they were failing by some material means to be good mothers or householders, they would be more likely to give in to the devil's temptation to give them supernatural power. So that's a tendency in women, but it's not exclusive to women because men fail to measure up too. So it's, uh, you know, so a man like Hugh Parsons is almost kind of feminized they would never have said it but he's kind of feminized because he see his main crime and this is really the crime of women he become witches is that he's weak yeah and uh so you know the thing about witchcraft accusations is that they are so rarely just finger pointing at somebody because you can't explain something or you don't like them because that most witchcraft accusations at law fail you know this is true in england and in old england it's extremely hard to prove. And so that even if a trial, even if an accusation does get it in, get into the courtroom, then there's an awful lot of kind of beard stroking and, you know, furrowed brows about the evidence because it just doesn't really stack up most of the time for um, uh, forming a covenant with the devil. So yeah. confessions are good for that because it's a bit hard to deny. If somebody says, oh, well, you know, I really did have sex with the devil <laughs> and uh, and then I had the devil's children and then I killed, you know, it's a bit like, well, you know, you've got to take that at face value. But even then there's the feeling that somebody might be mentally ill or disturbed or, and this idea that witches are sick rather than evil runs through the history of witchcraft right from the 16th through the 17th century. It's not just something that comes in later on. Yeah, uh, there are always those that says we ought to kind of help witches rather than get you know to execute them. Yeah, and they see people well, like Hugh seems to know his right, his law and his rights, and you know talk, talks about some of the cases only having one person observing them, so therefore they're they're not going to count in law because you need verification. So he's he's a clever guy, obviously, but obviously yeah. people were also aware of the legal arguments and and what worked and what and what stuck and what didn't stick. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of he's a barrack room lawyer. And I think that most yeah. even quite ordinary people were. It's it's an age of rising literacy and uh, availability of print uh, back in England, too. It's, it's this idea that everybody's illiterate and they're all kind of ignorant, clod hopping peasants is false. And so that, yeah, he's he, he knows his law and he's sort of, you know, he's right about that. But he's particularly relevant to witchcraft because he talks about witnesses and whether the point about witchcraft accusations is that there never are any witnesses. It's, you know, and so that the evidence which is used, we would all call circumstantial evidence. You know, I don't like him. I suspect him of witchcraft. <laughs> My pudding's just exploded in the kitchen, therefore. But, you know, that surprisingly, that just doesn't have much traction when he gets into a courtroom and that they are surprisingly able, as we would be, 
to separate those two events and not connect them. Because if you connect them, he's going to be executed. And they really don't want to execute people who might be innocent. Not, not because they're nice, because as we've already established, they're not nice, but because they would feel that that was, in a sense, a kind of act of judicial murder, which would then rain down God's vengeance, even more of God's vengeance upon the colony. And that's yeah. the last thing they need. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's really, again, I don't want to uh, go into too much detail just because there's obviously so much, uh, to, so much in the book and the, the twists in terms of what, of what happens. So it is, um, it's well worth reading, but I think I think you do because also the uh, the uh, William Pynchon, isn't it? The, uh, mm. the is is a fascinating character with within that as well. In in that he's the main man in the town and and the sort of religious figure, but he himself is is sort of coming up with ideas that are against uh, against the convention and gets into trouble for printing a book that doesn't doesn't go along with the the, the knowledge of the time, I suppose. So. Yeah. It, He's an interesting guy. Well, I think again, if it, if he had been a novel, you wouldn't have put pin, you wouldn't there would have been any need to invent Pynchon <laughs> because it just complicates things. And it's yeah. like, well, hang on. But the, there's this whole other story, which is is not separate from it because it, it it's about Pynchon being in effect a heretic. So that a lot of these Puritans, this is the irony. So many ironies about uh, colonization. They go over to America to supposedly. Uh, get away from the persecution of Puritans, but then they themselves become harsh defenders of orthodoxy, and Pynchon is a free thinker. So that he goes against what is now in New England, the Puritan orthodoxy, the Calvinist orthodoxy at Boston. He has his own ideas. And now these are ideas which, again, a bit like burst puddings, might seem incredibly trivial to us now. They're just points of difference about what the crucifixion meant and about whether, basically, was God angry with, with Christ or not? Or did Christ go willingly to the cross? Now, these things, even Christians today, uh, don't really understand why people uh, in the 17th century got upset about these issues. It isn't just about being secular, but these were fantastically important issues. And they argued, more than argued, they were willing to prosecute and kick people out. So that Pynchon coming up with his own ideas, which are then dubbed heretical by the powers that be in Boston just starts to make Springfield look like a really dodgy place. Witchers, <laughs> heretics, they all hate each other, you know. And, the, you know, this is one of the things about going to America is that they are, by the middle of the 17th century, they're quite willing to accept that there's going to be a hostile environment and weather and Native Americans and, uh, and all the things that threaten them. The one thing that they always forget is that they will hate each other. <laughs> and that actually they will pose great threats to so even the other communities further down the Connecticut Valley, everyone hates Springfield. You know? <laughs> everyone hates William Pynchon. He's a because he's not just a, you know, a theologian, he's a really hard-nosed entrepreneur. He wants everything for himself and for Springfield. And if that means pushing the Dutch out or pushing the Native Americans out, or pushing other English settlements down the down the Connecticut Valley out, he will do that because he's entirely self-serving. And, and I suppose it just shows the importance of conforming at the time. And I guess it was important if you're in a society that was that vulnerable and and you know, and and just building up. If anybody showed any sense of going their own way or wasn't a team player or just believing something that the others didn't believe, that was that was a danger to the the society that was that was growing as well. So both the, in both those cases, you've got people who were 
who aren't conforming and are thus and they're sort of smacked down a little bit for <laughs> for daring to express themselves. Yeah, that's exactly it. And the, yeah. uh, amazingly, the Boston authorities force them both into court in the same week. You know, so <laughs> that it isn't the, the humiliation of William Pynchon and the uh, the humiliation of uh, Hugh Parsons come at exactly the same time. And that they they you know back in Springfield, Parsons is at the bottom and Pynchon's at the top. But in Boston, they're kind of both laid low because they are. And so I think it really does make Springfield, because Springfield is a frontier community. You see, this is broken away and it's it's 100 miles west. It's very different from the Boston and its satellites on the eastern seaboard, which by the 1650s, you know, it's a bit like you know, Boston's a bit like Amsterdam or something. It's amazingly sophisticated. But once you get over to the Connecticut Valley, it's a different kind of story. You're really out on the, the you know, the fringes there. You're really out on the edge of the, the, the known world. But you're right that people of the, the, the people fundamentally depend upon one another for survival. And that's both true, but it's also very much their sense of themselves. And so nonconformity, you know, in a sense, they don't have the luxury of tolerance and toleration and being, you know, ones and, and apparently being nice to each other you know but, but they're all just working all the time aren't they to create yeah. the stuff they need you know like like you say bricks being difficult to make but they're all you know the women are all busy making whatever they're making while they're looking after the kids and the guys are out working and so i suppose anyone who feels like if you start to feel like someone else isn't pulling their weight or is or is tricking you or is you know is pulling the wool over your eyes in whatever way then that becomes like a massive issue i mean it is it's human nature yeah uh, unfortunately yeah it is <laughs> it's you know it just become hugely magnified that's right and they really you see this it's it's there's this custom, you know, this is an old world idea and we've kind of lost touch with it. Custom is just how you're supposed to behave with other people, what you expect of them. And also the concept of charity, that's changed its meaning. We tend to think of charity today is just is transactional, you know, you buy a copy of the big issue. It's an act of charity. But charity is a spiritual state of being and they all know they've got to live in charity with their neighbours because that's not just religiously important it's important for your economic survival mm. and some of them are good at it and some of them are not and those that are not find themselves frozen out but i do think that hugh and mary parsons it's it's partly that they're unlucky and it's partly that they're just particularly horrible uh <laughs> to, in, the, in the eyes of their neighbors because actually once they get rid of them and you follow through the the later histories of all those families that accused them they're all at loggerheads with each other too yeah. So it doesn't, I think one of the things that hopefully that the book shows is that witchcraft accusations or any of its kind of, any of our modern, you know, purging um, analogues, um, they, you know, they don't solve the problem. You know, they don't, yeah. you can get rid of people or you can accuse people or you can persecute people and you are not purged at the end of it. You still have the same problems. And a lot of them are emotional problems. Uh, of hatred and of fear and intolerance that you had right before. And I know there are a lot of Springfields in the United States, but do you feel this Springfield is the one that The Simpsons is based on? Because it feels a bit like it could be. No, it's definitely not. The, the, uh, the <laughs> Matt, Matt Grady finally fessed up. The, oh, did the, he? The, it was in, it's in Oregon. Oh, okay. But this is the first Springfield. <laughs> and I think there are about 12. But no, the, the Simpsons are in Oregon. But this is this one is based, this is named after a very small um, uh, village in Essex. 
still there today. And uh, and it's so this is this was the this was the colonizing cultural imperialism is that you because originally the Native American place is called Agawam. But, you know, that this is it goes right through to British soldiers in the First World War. As soon as you get a foreign place that you don't quite like the name of, give it a good old British name that you can actually <laughs> say. And But that's important to them because it, they, they call themselves the English. They don't call themselves American. They want to feel as English as possible. And that's one of the things about having a brickmaker and having all sorts of other trades. It's to try and rebuild something of England. So the, the New England of New England is... Not a, a necessarily an improved England. It's just a, another, you know, it's just a recreation, a kind of a, a kind of real life theme park of what England should be like, but over in the Connecticut Valley. Sure. And um, you didn't do the audio book yourself. Was that your choice, or was it all or with you? you? You seem to have a good speaking voice to me. So no, uh, I, I have very very few choices in my life, Richard, and, that, <laughs> and that's that was that was not one of them. Uh, no, they didn't. They um, they 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 chose an actor. Yeah, okay. that's fine. It keeps actors in work. It does keep actors. I actually think it's a. But I, I generally use the audio books because um, it's uh, it's easy to use them when you're doing other stuff. Or you know, but I feel this is a book that you're probably better off. I I both read it and listened to the audio book, and it's right. quite it's quite hard to uh, it's quite a hard audio book. I think to to unless you're really concentrated on it. Because there's so much detail and there's so much, yeah, flight, and there's yeah, so many true. different people flying around. So I would, I would personally recommend uh, reading this one. But uh, the audiobook is, is I did get through the whole audiobook, but I, I felt like I needed to go back and read some of it again because because it's complex. Uh, yeah, not because yeah. not because it's a, a bad job on on behalf of the actor who was uh, absolutely fine. Um, and what's your? I've, I've heard you're writing, you're moving on from uh, witches for your next book uh, into World War Two. Yeah. POWs. So one of the great things about not working in a university anymore is that I'm free to do what I like. So it's yeah. one, of, one, of, one of my choices that I have back. And uh, so, yeah, I'm doing a book about, um, yeah, Second World War Italy and um, POWs and escapers and evaders and partisans based on a, uh, a memoir that my great uncle left. But it's, it's really, it's a li- it does have, it, it seems wildly different. It's my midlife crisis. Um but it's not really because it is a little bit like the epilogue to the Rune of All Witches in the sense that I'm trying to, you know, to show the workings out a bit, to try and show how historians take a story and imagine things and make guesses and test them and so on. Um, and so to sort of really dissolve history into storytelling and, you know, the, the sorts of things that, that the past mean to us without actually making it one grand, you know, narrative where you say this is the truth yeah. uh, but try and try and make the the narrator a little bit more uncertain in it okay yeah it sounds brilliant i mean i'm i'm very much in i love uh, i love this pow uh, escape so i'm in i'm in already but it sounds like it sounds like a a, a much more uh, dense book than that as well so that will be how long how long will that take to be at? are you still at what oh. stage are you at Oh God! Well, pretty early stages, actually. Right. <laughs> so, um, uh, hopefully, in about three three years, I think okay. uh, we'll, it should hit the uh, okay, uh, hit I'll the try and, stands. I'll try and stay alive. Stay alive that long. <laughs> yeah, uh, and um, <laughs> and so should you as well. I think. Oh, we're the same. We're the same age, Richard. So oh, um, I think. Okay. Yeah, we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Oh dear! Oh dear for us. Um, and is there, is there are there any other books you would uh, like to recommend that you're reading or that? Uh, 
Um, You've read recently? Yeah, um, uh, Sam Knight's the Premonitions Bureau. He's been. Um, we, 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 we talked about. We talked to him on you, this podcast already. Him, great. Yeah. And um, um, what else it was really good? Um, I just read a very good book. Very good book on the resistance, um, which is by uh, Halit Kuchansky, which is which is really really dense, but gives you an incredible view. Again, it's sort of confounding some expectations about European political history and how that uh, translated into resisting the Nazis and the incredible complexities and divided loyalties. So that is a really it's a really weighty book, but it actually tells an incredibly um, passionate story. Uh, well, just one other, um, Hayley Campbell's uh, All the Living and the Dead. Uh, everybody should read that book. It's about the death trade. And okay. uh, an extraordinary um, eye-opening accounts of all the people that deal with us after we have shuffled off this mortal coil. Okay. Um, anyway, but it's it's actually quite a, a, a sort of a, a light read in some ways. It doesn't sound, okay. sound really dark. Anyway. <laughs> So that's my, that's my roundup. Oh, terrific. Well, look, uh, everyone, first of all, should read uh, Malcolm Gaskill's The Ruin of All Witches, Life and Death of the New World. Get, let's give it the full the full title. It's The Ruin of All Witches. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll get you there. Um, thanks so much for talking to us and being our guest. And, uh, yeah, good luck with the, with the new book. Thanks so much, Rich. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thanks also to Chris Evans, not that one, for uh, producing. And uh, we'll see you back in September with the next book club. It's all going to be uh, Edinburgh Fringe or Hallistoppers for the next few weeks. Goodbye. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk. No, this isn't a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture, and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. I'm Rachel Stewart, and I'm travelling around Europe, following the hidden history of everyday things as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance, or by choice. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you very much for listening to my podcasts. Listen to some more. Tell your friends about these podcasts. We're in a very competitive market and it would be lovely to keep those downloads coming in. The more downloads we get, the more money we make and the more podcasts we can make for you. It's a beautiful symbiotic relationship. Come and see me on tour at richardherring.com. But otherwise, just, you know, go outside. Enjoy the spring air. It's beautiful out there. I love you all. Goodbye.